Can we give a hand to Charlotte and to uh, Christine for the wonderful work they've done to make this possible? I'm so impressed. I, um, I do a lot of talks and conferences, um, and the communication and the, uh, and the love and compassion that I've experienced in the course of the time I've been working with you has just been wonderful, so thank you so much. Well, uh, in all uh, uh, honesty and, uh, I guess, transparency, um, I am not a nurse, but I am a member of the American Holistic Nursing Association because I do a lot of work with them. And I want to say um, thank you very much for all the work you do in the front lines of healthcare. And so, um, you know, having talked to a lot of nurses, I thought what I'd do is put up um, one of my favorite slides, um, see if, uh, if it works here. Nurse, the first person you see after saying, hold my beer and watch this. <laughs> Well, um, because uh, this presentation, unlike the last one, although it actually has some similarities to it, is about care for the caregiver in a sense, um, we all know the truth. You can't pour from an empty cup. And so uh, part of uh, what I'm going to do here, part of my job here, is to help us come back to the well. And the well is some time to take some purse time for yourselves because we want to honor that idea that you are very important and that if you don't take care of yourself, we can't take care of our patients um, at the, the best level there. So uh, let's talk about change for a second. 40 years ago, 41 years ago now, this book came out called Future Shock. Alvin Toffler was not a psychic, he was a futurist. He took a look at trends that were going on in the course of the culture and he said, if things continue the way I see them going, we are in for some big change around the year 2000. And he said, possibly even sooner. I heard a story, um, he was interviewed on NPR not too long ago and um, at the celebration of the 40th anniversary of his book and he said, Everything I predicted basically has come true. And what he predicted was urban sprawl, a lot of traffic, this thing called computerization of the world, information overload, and stress. And it turns out that he was right. It also turns out that someone else wrote a book kind of like his, maybe a sequel, called Who Moved My Cheese? You know, as an author, I'm kind of impressed that this book can sell for 20 bucks with 14 pages. Uh, that's a side note there. Uh, but it tur <laughs> turns out that um, after Future Shock, this gentleman here came out with a book called Present Shock, or It's Here Right Now. He said everything Alvin Toffler talked about in terms of change has come about. And by and large, people don't like change. Just FYI, people don't like change, especially change they cannot control. And we are in times of tremendous change right now. When I was talking to Charlotte, she said, um, uh, our, our hospital is going through some changes. Can you talk about change? And I said, sure. I said, it's a hot topic right now because we're in such times of tremendous change. Uh, Douglas actually had this quote in the book. He said, our society has reorientated itself to the present moment. Everything is live, real, time, and always on. As change accelerates, our inability to have perspective becomes our greatest liability. And perspective is so important in terms of how we're going to cope with change. If nothing else you get out of this presentation, it's this. We have to learn how to see the bigger picture. Well, in times of change, we have stress. The word stress and change are often thought to be synonymous. And so we see it make the headline news, I don't think, often enough. I think, to be honest with you, this is more important than anything that Kim Kardashian says. <laughs> uh, Time Magazine, every now and then, gives us a barometer check and says that we are in the decade of, of, of uh, hell. 
We see headlines in magazines, which I tend to see when I go grocery shopping, that say now, basically, you got to learn to deal with stress. It's not going to go away. They actually say so much as stress is good for you. But look at this. Stress could save your life. And I agree to a point. Some stress is good. We are so far beyond that point, it's ridiculous. It's really ridiculous. But why anxiety is good for you? But take a look at some of these headlines here. Um, the internet culture definitely has caused some stress. And then how about this, work is hell. Um, I, I meet people who say to me, my life is a Dilbert cartoon strip. And then of course here, stress is good for you. This is what now we're getting the message of. Basically, it's not gonna go away and they're trying to convince us and I think doing a terrible job that basically it's good for you. Don't buy it, okay? We're so far beyond that point, it's ridiculous. But, and here's a huge caveat, we can, we can manage it. We can actually navigate the shoals of change so that we don't end up shipwrecked on the course of each day that we have. So um, I listen to a lot of nurses, I work with a lot, a lot of nurses, and it um, turns out that I'm on the board of a hospital. By the way, I, I staged this photo just for you guys. Uh, but it turns out that um, across the country, and perhaps here I don't know for sure, but these are things I hear nurses say, that we're understaffed, we're overworked, we're underpaid, and perhaps the one they say the most often is underappreciated. And when this happens, what happens with this is a sense of resentment at the unconscious level, which leads to what we have already heard before, the term which is called compassion fatigue. And so when change occurs and this is part of that, then it begins to even make it worse. We have a greater sense of these things coming our way. But we also have more in the healthcare profession. And again, I salute you for being on the front lines of healthcare because that itself is going through a lot of change. But here's more things I hear on a regular basis. Patient demands. Paperwork, we can stop right here. Uh, I know that's not why you got into nursing, but it seems like this is all you do right now, right? Um, administration demands, the Joint Commission. By the way, this puts fear in the heart of everyone in the hospital, if I'm not mistaken, right? Uh, MDs, uh, personal demands, family demands. These things add up to basically where they basically put you under or push you underwater where it's hard to come up for air. And as a consequence, um, this adds more and more stress to our lives. Uh, I won't go through this whole list, you can read it yourself, but basically this is what, if you're living and breathing right now in the 21st century, then you've got these things coming at you as well. And the result is that we feel pressure, and as a consequence, it ends up having an effect on our physical health. Uh, I'm convinced that the association between stress and disease is colossal. It's, it's everything from the common cold to cancer, everything from herpes to hemorrhoids. By the way, do you ever wonder why they're called hemorrhoids and not asteroids? <laughs> just, just see if you're paying attention, you know? Please don't let that be the only thing you remember from this talk, okay? <laughs> so we have stress going to work. That was photographed in Braintree, by the way. We have stress still going to work. We have stress at work. We have stress going home from work. Even when we get home, we have stress. Oh, in the summertime, we have stress too. Look at this one here. You know, I saw this great cartoon. It's a guy going to work in a spaceship like George Jetson with a glass top. And on top of this glass top is a coffee mug. And down below the cartoon caption is, new technology, same mentality. When we get home, we've got stress. Stress is called the equal opportunity destroyer. It doesn't make a difference how much money you make, where you live, what you do for a living, or put your tongues in your cheeks for a second, 
how dysfunctional your parents were when you were growing up. We all have stress. I'm gonna say we all have stress. I mean, we, we all have stress. But stress knows no demographic boundaries, differences. It hits everyone. And when I say everyone, I mean everyone. <laughs> you know, I didn't believe in reincarnation until I saw this picture, but it turns out that um, I was speaking at a hospital and the hospital CEO comes up to me afterwards and says, you know that one slide in your presentation? I thought, oh God, I know I shouldn't have put them there. I said, I'm sorry if it offended you. And he said, I just have one question. And I said, well, sure, what is it? And he says, I want to find out how the hell you got a photograph of my daughter. <laughs> I've heard that three times since then. So then I gave a talk at, a, I gave a lot of talk in corporate America, and I gave a talk at this one place, uh, at, uh, Quaker Roads, actually, in Chicago. And this woman says to me, I love this crescendo you're building, but you're missing the last slide. And I said, what's the last slide? There's more stress than this? And she goes, oh, honey, you have no idea. She goes, I'll send you a JPEG. So the next day, this comes in the email. It says, even the animal kingdom is stressed. <laughs> Maybe you know this cat. Well, um, I love this quote. It says, attitude is the paintbrush in which we choose to color the world. And we all know that stress is a perception, but our attitudes are so important with how we deal with stress. And so if there's anything else you get out of this talk, I hope this is what you keep in mind. Attitude is how we color the world and we wanna make sure we have the right colors and the right paintbrush. You know, you probably heard what happened in Columbine High School. I, I, I actually, I was born and raised in Connecticut, so it's great to be back in New England, but I, I now live in Colorado. And when this happened, the whole world stopped in Colorado because everyone seemed to know somebody who was affected by that. And I was asked to go down to the high school after the event and do some stress management for the faculty and staff of the school. And I saw this poster on four or five walls walking through and I thought somebody, I could tell they were new, somebody's trying to plant some seeds that we're gonna get through this. And we'll always get through stress. We just need to have a little bit of oomph in the right direction. And I, I'm grateful for that person that did that. So how do we define stress? Uh, this should be basically just review. We all know this stuff, but what I discovered is that um, there are lots of definitions. And the reason why there's lots of definitions because um, this is a field of study which we know from the field of, of psychology, but also sociology, physiology, anthropology, theology. This is a colossal topic, and all of these people have their own definitions, and by and large, they don't speak to each other. So let me give you some definitions that I think might kind of pull things together. Hans Selye, the grandfather of stress management, says that stress is wear and tear in the body. And you know what? He's right. I mean, why do they call it a tension headache? But from the field of psychology, we have this. Stress is the inability to cope with problems. A very cognitive-based definition. Very, very different than Hans Selye's. And then we have some people who say that stress is a loss of emotional control. Now, I had an hour ride from the airport, Logan Airport, to the hotel. And I can tell you, I saw lots of stress in the hour it took to get here. Road rage is, is not unknown to Massachusetts drivers, I can tell you right now. And then how about this definition? I love this. It's a great one. It says, stress is the absence of inner peace. You can't be stressed and be relaxed at the same time. It's, it's virtually impossible. Four different definitions, and it turns out that there's many, many more. Here's one more. It says, stress is any change you encounter in your life. And again, I'm going to tell you that by and large, People don't like change, especially change they can't control. And take a look at the world that we're in right now. Lots of change going on. And so um, I love the expression that says, the only person who likes change, the only person who likes change is a wet baby. The rest of us do not like change.
Well, I love this quote too. It says, tension is who you think you should be. Relaxation is who you are. Isn't that nice? Well, um, I thought I'd give you a stress test. I think you're all going to pass pretty easily, but let's just kind of see how we, are, we stand here. What you're about to see up on the screen, hopefully you can all see the screen, is a picture of a woman. Real quickly, what's the first thing you see? Who sees an old woman? Okay, who sees a young woman? Here's a real question. Who sees no women? Okay, if I had a pointer, I may have to be in. Oh, I got a pointer. Okay, so the uh, young woman, this is her eyelash, her nose, sorry, her, uh, her chin and her ear and her necklace. You see that? The elderly woman, we have big eye, honker of a nose, and those are her thin lips. We have an expression in stress management that says this. Every situation has a good side and a bad side. Each moment you decide. Hey, it's working. Yay. Well, I love this picture because this is a guy who is not in control. Would you agree? He's not in the driver's seat. But the beauty of this is that he has learned to stay balanced on the bike. He's not falling off. We all have the ability to stay balanced even if we're not in control. And by the way, if you are in control of everything, I want to see you because that's called being delusional. <laughs> Uh, so a little bit of optimism goes a long way. I know I, I listen to NPR a lot. Anybody here listen to NPR? National Public Radio? Do you guys make your pledges? We've got pledge drive coming up. Uh, it turns out they did a story about two years ago on different characters in American literature, and one story was on Pollyanna. It turns out that Pollyanna is a character during the Depression who basically saw the whole picture, saw the problems, but said, I'm going to focus on the good things. Over the course of the decades, and it may have been the drug-induced era of the 60s, but somehow she became delusional and Pollyanna became a negative term. Oh, you got rose-colored glasses. I'm thinking, let's reclaim the, the integrity of this character for who she really is. She saw the whole picture, but decided not to focus on the negative, focus on the positive. We too can do this. And you want to hear who the first real Pollyanna was that I'm sure you all were introduced to in grade school? Anne Frank. This is one of her quotes from her book. She says, I don't think about all the misery, but about the beauty that still remains. We too can do that. This is how you cope with change and do it gracefully. Well, in terms of healthy boundaries, this is something we need to talk about because this is a uh, huge problem in healthcare in terms of our country. We have such poor, poor boundaries with things like finances and eating habits and technology and relationships. So I, I want to actually see if we can try a little experiment. But to begin with, I just thought I'd tell you a story. Um, this is a cartoon that says, now might be a good time to listen to your email. I don't think so. I think now is a good time to go to the bathroom and then leave the bathroom, just do the business you came there for. But to show you the problems we're seeing in terms of poor boundaries, I'm at Denver's airport yesterday morning, and I don't normally share these stories, bathroom stories, but this one I think I'm going to. Um, I decided I, after I had breakfast I, I would wash my hands, so I go in the men's room to wash my hands, and I see this guy up against the, the urinals with his forehead to the wall. He's got a big gulp in one hand, and he's got a cell phone in the other. Now, as someone who studied physiology, my first thought was, my, isn't this interesting? Fluid's going in, fluid's going out. But then, I can't make this next part up. In a stall, I hear this guy say, hey, Bob, I got to go now. And then he says, I'm in the middle of some really busy paperwork, and it can't wait. And I'm thinking, are you kidding me? Poor boundaries. So... I want to see if we can take a little hint here. Uh, by the way, employee of the month. <laughs> this is not a, not a, a 
uh, BMC employee. But I want to see if we can take a little, uh, little hint. Here is Ronald Reagan. He's not having a good hair day. Uh, it turns out that um, my first job out of college was as the Associate Director of Cardiac Rehab in La Crosse, Wisconsin. My background is in ex-phys initially and then went on to health psychology. But it turned out that we had the boss from hell. Now, that term hadn't been coined yet, so we just called him the Antichrist. But he, he took up everything, and he was a cardiologist, I, that comment was made earlier. Uh, it turns out that um, he consumed every conversation to the point where what I saw at the worksite was toxicity. It was negativity, negativity in the category of what I call as BMW, which stands for bitch, moan, and whine. Now, you can do BMW, but not all the time. Okay, so we, we cathart which is very, very healthy. We do it physically. It's called number one or number two, but you don't sit on the toilet all day long. You have healthy boundaries. So I wanna try a little exercise. I wanna give you permission to turn to the person next to you and cathart. I want you to, Ronald Reagan's lead, I want you to go ahead and just do BMW, okay? But the, I have one rule, no personal attacks. I can't turn to Charlotte and say, Charlotte, I don't like your dress. Actually, you look very pretty. <laughs> You can talk about the weather, you can talk about politics. Uh, I wouldn't go there if I were you, but um, <laughs> talk whatever you want. I'm gonna tell you when your time is up, okay? Everyone got the, the skill set here? You're going to turn to a person next to you and you're going to complain about something, okay? Ready, go ahead. Okay, okay so you know, I'm not sure I explain this right because rarely do I hear such giggling going on when I hear such hear bitching. Did, did I not explain this properly? Okay, so good job, good job. Now, the point of this is that it is okay to do BMW, but we wanna put a healthy limit on it. We wanna put a healthy boundary, and the healthy boundary is, I'm gonna say five minutes. If you're having a bad day, five minutes. If you're having a horrible day, 10 minutes, but then stop and change the course of the direction because by not doing that, you now dive into the whirlpool of negativity and you get stunned in the spin cycle forever and ever and ever. And when you do this, you have a sign in your forehead that says, I am a victim. You ever hear the expression that says, once a victim, twice a volunteer? Okay, so in this case here, it's okay to do BMW. Don't, don't move, stay where you are, okay? Um. <laughs> I'm not done yet. <laughs> it's okay to do BMW, but not all the time. Put a healthy boundary on it. So next time, eavesdrop on the conversations, because this is a skill. All the stress management is a skill. Begin to observe and listen to what you're talking about. And if you find that you're going and in, dipping into BMW, that's okay. Okay, this is a, this is, it's cathartic, it's healthy, but put a healthy boundary on it. And at some point, someone's going to say, what's going on with you, Mrs. Pollyanna? Say, I am taking control of my life. Healthy boundaries. Repeat after me these words. One, two, three, healthy boundaries. One, two, three, healthy boundaries. Oh, that was good. Let's do it again. One, two, three, healthy boundaries. One of my friends is named Zach. Zach's life is a train wreck. And he comes to my talks and he kind of like mocks me under his belt, like healthy boundaries, healthy boundaries. <laughs> and then I think somehow it sank in because all of a sudden he decided to divorce his wife and change jobs. And now he comes around he, <laughs> on my Facebook page. He goes, Luke is really good teaching healthy boundaries. <laughs> and what he does is he now has a mantra healthy boundaries. It's a way to take back your personal sovereignty in the course of changes which you have no control over. Does that make sense? So at first what happens when you make changes, people make fun of you. That's okay. That means their life's a train wreck, okay? Let's deal with one wreck at a time. Now, we've just played half of a game. The second half is to follow the lead of this guy here. This is one of my heroes. Nelson Mandela gets locked up in prison for, for 26 years. When he gets out, no animosity, 
no resentment, no anger. He goes on to become the president of South Africa, a role model. The whole world mourned him when he died. If you get a chance to read his autobiography, he says, when I got released from the prison on Robben Island, I turned around and looked at my cell and realized if I did not leave my anger there, I would be a prisoner the rest of my life. And so now, taking his lead, I want you to turn to the person next to you who you were speaking to, and I want you to find something positive to say about what you were bitching about, and I don't want the room to be silent. Okay, ready? Go ahead. Okay, good, good. Now, great job. Great job. This was a skill. This was a role playing, but I got news for you. The minute you walk out these doors at the end of the day today, it's no longer a game because those people outside the walls here don't know it's a game. They think it's real. And there's almost a contest about who can bitch the most and the loudest. Don't buy into it. I'll tell you one story. I got asked to go speak to a hospital down in um, uh, North Carolina, uh, UNC Chapel Hill. And um, they had a lot of stress going on there. They said, would you come do a two-day workshop? So I did. And then I got a phone call from the CEO of the hospital about six months later. And he said to me, are you the guy that came to my hospital and did a talk on stress? I said, yeah, is everything okay? And he said, um, he said, yeah, he goes, what did you do? He goes, something magical happened, and I don't know what it is. He said, I don't know what you did. Well, what we did was this. Everyone at the hospital agreed to put a healthy boundary on bitching because they realized they were creating a toxic work environment. And that the idea was to put a healthy boundary on it, five minutes, 10 minutes max, and then change the subject to something positive, or at least neutral, and not give your power away to this. When you hear people who are doing BMW, what you are hearing is grieving. Does that make sense? They are grieving the change which they, they've lost something. The expectations has been lost and now they're trying to compensate. But it, grieving's healthy, but prolonged grieving is not healthy. And so what you don't want to do is now get caught in the trap of prolonged grieving where you give your power away. And so what I'd like to ask in this room is if we can make a, a group agreement that we will put a healthy boundary on this so that we don't give our power away to the whirlpool of negativity. And I think what you're gonna see is, and this is, a, it takes practice. The first day you'd be like, oh my God, I want a half an hour. <laughs> but at least you're aware you want a half an hour. Some people aren't even clueless of that, they're clueless of that. Then cut, cut back to five minutes, if that. But what you're gonna do is you're gonna start realizing that I feel better. I feel better about doing this. We now know that people who do BMW have a suppressed immune system. And right now, I can tell you, <laughs> we need every white cell we can get our hands on, white blood cell. Um, I just gave a talk to the CDC last week, and I said to this one guy, I said, what do you see is the biggest problem in, in, a, in what you do for a living? And he said, global warming. And I said, really? And he goes, the number of microbes spreading across the planet with the heat, he goes, it is a problem. And I said, we got to boost our immune systems. He goes, yeah, that's a good start, but that's not all we're going to do. So I want to tell you, what can you do to help boost your immune system? Healthy boundaries, healthy boundaries. Repeat after me, healthy boundaries. Very good, okay, good. Um, so in case you're looking for a book, here's a book called Boundaries by Henry Cloud and John Townsend. It's the idea about basically how to have better um, uh, guidelines in their lives. Now we, we were raised with boundaries in terms of our parents. Parents give kids healthy boundaries, otherwise they get walked all over. And it's the rule, uh, role of the kid to push the boundaries to become basically you know, freedom at you know, age two or three or so. How many people grew up with this one here? This is what one my mom gave me. No phone calls at 9 o'clock. Remember that one? You know, and I'm like, hey, Ma, I'm looking for a loophole. Hey, Ma, what if the Pope calls at 9.01? <laughs> Not for sure I had her on that one. She said, he'll wait till tomorrow like everybody else. 
like, my mother is God. Well, it turns out that as adults, who gives us healthy boundaries? You got to give them to yourself. And if you don't, you end up becoming in the vein of victimization. Now, one more example, because this is so important. One of my favorite movies is a movie called The Color Purple. And there's one scene there that really struck me because um, I, I was raised, uh, well, we'll get to that later, but uh, I can relate to this. Um, Oprah Winfrey's on the coach at uh, the, the porch with um, Whoopi Goldberg, and she says to her, girl, you're just a welcome mat, and people walking all over you. And I heard that, and I thought, oh my God, that's me. That something's got to change right now. And so I want you to think to yourself, what can you do to pull the reins in, make a slight course correction in your life? That's what healthy boundaries are. So you no longer give your power away and end up grieving nonstop. Does that make sense? Yes. And just take a look at the, the, the dialogue going on in our culture today. There is a lot of grieving. Some of it's healthy. A lot of it is way beyond that point. So it's time for us to take back our power. Uh, there are two emotions with stress. Okay, there's actually hundreds, but they fall nicely and neatly in two categories. Anger is a fight response. Fear is a flight response. These are survival emotions. We need these two emotions to navigate our lives for physical stressors. Example, if this building hypothetically were to go out in flames, you would want fear to kick in to get out these doors of safety. Otherwise, you're going to become what is known as a piece of toast. Okay? <laughs> Anger is the same way. Anger is a means to try and communicate a boundary violation of someone invading your space. But it turns out that these are not appropriate if they're used for non-physical stressors, and they're not appropriate if they go beyond that point there. And, and where, by, by the way, whenever you see chronic stress, a thought should occur to you that where there's chronic stress, there's some play of the ego in a control drama. Okay? Now, the ego is not the bad guy. The ego actually is your bodyguard. But it's supposed to be your bodyguard for physical stressors, not other things in terms of trying to become the CEO of things. So we want to try and put the ego back in its place, let us do its job properly. Otherwise, we're going to have a mess. Like what they typically say is, learn to domesticate the ego, or you're going to have poop all over the place. <laughs> uh, so I thought what I'd do is spend some time, because when there's change, these two emotions surface. There's anxiety, and there's also anger. So I thought we'd take a moment to take a look at stress through the eyes of Kubler-Ross. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, you may recognize this is actually the grieving model. Denial, look where anger is. I kind of put that in red so you wouldn't miss it. But these are the same aspects of change. When people go through change, the same thing, especially with change they can't control. And what we want to do is we want to actually move through the process down to adaptation. This is the key. How do you cope with change? You go with the flow. Adaptation is another word for change. Interestingly enough, stress is a word for change. But in this case here, we want to go with the flow so we no longer give our power away. This is the time right now to reclaim our personal sovereignty. And by giving our power away, we fail miserably. So this is the time to take it back and become basically empowered. So we talked about the idea of compassion fatigue. That's where basically our, our hearts turn to stone and we no longer are able to give the quality of care that we want to because, I mean, we got in this profession, we didn't do it for the money. We did it because we want to make the world a better place, right? But at some point we feel victimized. We're no longer giving the quality of care because we feel as if we're pouring from an empty cup. And part of that comes down to the idea of how well we deal with anger. And so when we see this idea of, of anger that gets unresolved, this is part of the idea of what we see as, as victimization coming back here again. So I thought I'd take some time to go through what I think is some really important aspects of anger management and how to deal with this because it is so prevalent today, whether it's in Boston or whether it's across the, the whole country here or the world. 
Um, two books I want to bring to your attention. The first one's called The Dance of Anger by Harriet Lerner. If you have not read this book, I highly recommend you read it. Um, first of all, can I see a, a show of hands for all the guys in the room? All three guys, four guys? Okay, can, we, can we give them a hand? Anchoring the male energy. Okay, guys, pay attention here. If you have a mother, a wife, a daughter, or a sister, you need to read this book. This book is about basically women's anger issues, and women have been given the shaft and the ability to express anger, unlike men who have sports arenas and all kinds of things. Uh, but anyway, this book is really, really essential. And if you have clients who have health issues, you heard earlier today about the ideas of integrative medicine. By the way, if I didn't say it, I'll say it right now. Every modality for stress management serves one purpose, to bring you back to homeostasis. Every modality in the, in the family, there's like 600 of integrative or alternative or complementary modalities has one purpose, to bring you back to homeostasis. So every technique for stress management is the mode out in the family of integrative medicine. In this case here, um, uh, if you have any patients who have uh, health issues, you should know that every health issue has an emotional correlate, and there's a lot of them that deal with anger. I'll get to that in a second. The second book is called Healing, with, uh, Healing Rage by Ruth King. Now, th th this book here came out about 35 years ago, The Dance of Anger. It was as germane today as it was then because things really haven't changed, but Ruth King kind of did an update on it in case you can't find The Dance of Anger. Um, I love a quote. It says, he who angers you conquers you. Again, if we don't deal with anger properly, then we give our power away, and it's an illusion of control. Two more books I want to bring to your attention. The first one's called Anger Kills by Redford Williams. He's a cardiologist. He talks about how anger now is the new type A. But another book I want to bring to your attention is called Make Anger Your Ally. And the guy who wrote this book, um, you may not recognize his name, but I think you're going to recognize something he's done. His name is Neil Clark Warren, and he actually made a website called eHarmony.com. And if you were to go on, things may have changed, but if you were to go on this website to take the inventory, um, you'll notice that over half the questions deal with anger issues. And if you hit the red flag and then, then hit, you know, you won't know this, but you will when it comes up back to try and see, you know, hit, find me a match. If you're married, don't hit send, okay? Just make sure that you know there's the rules here. Um, but if you decide to hit the send button and don't get back a response, other than this, we can't find you a match. Basically, it means we don't want you breeding with anybody because you have too many anger issues. Uh, but in this book called Make Anger Ally, um, he talks about what is known as the four mismanaged anger styles. And I thought I'd take you through these because if one person in this room benefits from hearing this, the world's going to be a better place. I guarantee we're probably all going to benefit from this. But here it goes. There's four different styles of mismanaged anger. I'll take you through each one. But know that all four of these are bad. None of these are good. But this is basically human behavior at its worst up here. So very likely you're going to recognize yourself once, maybe twice, perhaps three times. So the first one is called the somatizer. And the somatizer is somebody who doesn't express their anger. They suppress their anger. These people are the nicest people. And a lot of them are nurses. Okay? These people have basically a lot of health issues because the body becomes a battlefield for the war games, the mind, when things are not expressed. If they're suppressed, then we're going to have some problems. So let me give you some examples to show the mind-body connection here. And again, I'm going to speak in generalizations. There are all kinds of exceptions, so go for the concept. But the first one I want to share with you is TMJ, temporal mandibular joint dysfunction. When you grind your teeth at nighttime, what do you do at nighttime? Because in the daytime, you are the nicest person. Uh, but at nighttime, ego's turned off and grind, 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 grind. I gave a talk in this city to the American Association of Orthodontists. I found out that over 30% of the population has TMJ. 
or where the, the bite changes because the muscles tend so much and the numbers are increasing. Another one, migraine headaches. We heard earlier about migraine headaches, but migraine headaches often have a correlation to unresolved anger issues. And do you know what the number one profession is for the most migraine headaches? Here um, go the evaluations. No. It's not. <laughs> uh, kindergarten school teachers. Because they want to say things like this. Billy, stop blowing on Mary's hair. <laughs> so they say, Billy, come here. That wasn't appropriate behavior. Now, if Billy was my kid, I would want the second of the two approaches taken. But if you're doing this day after day after day, stuffing and stuffing and stuffing, it's going to come out somewhere else. You know, I gave a talk to a bunch of school teachers in Colorado, 1,000 school teachers. I said, who here is a kindergarten school teacher? And about 50 people raised their hands. And I said, leave your hands up if you suffer from migraine headaches. Nobody put their hands down, and someone yelled out, you forgot first grade teachers, too. <laughs> Um, another problem with uh, the somatizer is what we call the autoimmune diseases. There's a whole family of these, from lupus to Epstein-Barr to uh, rheumatoid arthritis. The list is pretty long. Take a look at the literature. When you see in the literature it says where the body attacks the body, that's code for unresolved anger issues. Do you follow me on this? And so the list is pretty long. And then I'll give you one more example because my body connection is pretty, pretty strong. Um, I'm in the office, getting my, my dental office, getting my uh, teeth cleaned not too long ago. And the dental hygienist says to me, I almost quit my job last week. I'm like, well, why? Do you ever notice how they have these most profound conversations that you can't partake in? And so, uh, so she says, well, because Stan, and Stan's my dentist, and he's a friend of mine, so he's okay, I tell the story. She goes, Stan uh, was on a rampage the past two months, and we said, if you don't stop this, we're all gonna quit the same day, and you'll be screwed. He said, you gotta help me. What's going on here? I, something's happened, I don't know what it is. So they took a look at his whole life for a three-month period, not just two months, but three months, and one thing had changed, one thing. Before I tell you what this is, we're gonna take a little dip into Chinese medicine, because in Chinese medicine, every organ is associated with an emotion. The lungs, grief. The heart, love. Kind of, we borrowed that one from the Chinese, I think. The liver, anger. Too much anger and we'll see liver complications. He was put on Lipitor. And all of a sudden now, there were all kinds of angry outbursts. So we went to his doctor, called up and said, I don't know what you're gonna do, but you get me off this medicine because I'm about to lose my practice. So that's a somatizer. We call this somebody who doesn't express, they suppress, and as a result, the body becomes a battlefield for the war games, the mind. Not a good idea. We also, by the way, this is the June Cleaver uh, uh, anger style. Um, we also call this one the silent stone. I was asked because of what happened at Columbine to do a, a book on teens and stress, and so we call this hot stones and funny bones, and we gave these names different, um, or these styles different names. This one's called the silent but deadly stone. The next one is called the exploder. The exploder is someone who erupts like a volcano and their lava goes in the path of intimidation. These people make the headline news. The somatizers never make the headline news. So examples, guy walks into McDonald's with Uzi and shoots 40 kids. You heard that a while ago. Uh, guy walks into Starbucks in Seattle and takes out seven policemen. Two kids walk into Columbine. Uh, again, these people always make the headline news, but it's not just guys. Every guy in this room is quite well aware of this story. Woman grabs kitchen knife, walks into bedroom, and lifts covers. Lorena Bobbitt, the name that strikes fear in the groin of every guy. So none of these are actually gender specific. You can, be, you can do them both, doesn't make a difference here. Um, now we're seeing a real problem now because the exploder is somebody who actually um, seems to have a little rage problem. And when you hear road rage, gas pump rage, airport rage, tarmac rage, 
you should think explosive behavior. But it can be more subtle, and, uh, and I know this word actually has a different meaning in Boston, because, you know, I got roots here too. Um, by the way, did you ever hear of the, uh, the um, place in Boston called uh, the Bull and Finch Tavern? My sister designed the logo for that art school. Yeah, pretty cool. Is it still around? Okay, so uh, this word is the F word, and, or F the F bomb. And when you hear this, you should think someone's angry about something. Okay, at the unconscious level, they are converting uh, or conveying anger. So when you hear with the F-bomb, or God forbid you use the F-bomb, I want you to ask yourself now, what am I angry about? It's got great phonetics. I'll be the first to admit that. You know, when I was in college, you saved it for special occasions, but today people use it in every breath. Have you noticed that? A lot of anger going on. So just kind of observe when people use the F-word and, and what a connotation. And then if you say to them, are you angry about something? F no. Why? <laughs> we see this in TV shows. Are you guys are fans of the Game of Thrones? Oh my God. I'm so glad when he died. Oh, spoiler alert. Um, but we also see it in other TV shows. Uh, but even volcanoes will calm down before they erupt back up again. Uh, we call this one the volcanic stone. And by the way, this is um, a piece of artwork when I worked with the kids at Sunset Middle School. It was drawn by the class bully. And bullying is a form of this behavior. I could add a great another example, but I'm not going to go there. <laughs> I promised myself I wouldn't talk politics. Uh, the next one's called a self-punisher. <laughs> self-punisher is somebody who doesn't... Um, uh, feel that they can be angry, so they convert their anger into other emotions. This is somebody who actually denies themselves a proper outlet of anger, and as a consequence, chooses the path of obsessive, obsessive compulsive behaviors. The most uh, common example is overeating. Food is a pacifier, they calm their nerves, but then it becomes problematic. I had a friend in the uh, uh, University of Colorado who wrote a book called, If You're Gonna Eat at the Fridge, Pull Up a Chair. <laughs> Uh, but it's not just overeating, it's excess exercise, excess sleep, uh, excess sex, uh, excess shopping, retail therapy. I think we've all heard of that one. So this is an example of, <laughs> of, uh, of the self-punishment. I was asked to do this book, as I mentioned, and I, I interviewed over um, 101 kids between the ages of 11 and 18 about how they deal with anger. And when the first kid said to me, well, when I get angry, I just take a razor blade and cut my arm. <laughs> I was so naive, I'm like, no you don't. I mean, no one does that. Turns out he does. It turns out 30% of the kids across the country do this. Self-mutilation, or now called self-harm. Um, so this is a category of this. We call this one here um, the uh, razor stone. And this, by the way, is a picture of a girl in uh, middle school who drew this. Every picture had a knife, shards of glass, and flames. And this is actually a very addictive behavior. Um, I, I, I'll tell you now, I was raised by two abusive alcoholic parents, so I know what the alcoholism addiction process is like from that side. And her verbiage was identical to an alcoholic talking about trying to, to cure themselves of drinking, although she was using the term cutting. Very, very addictive process. Last but not least is the underhander behavior. Underhander's motto is don't get mad. God, I was hoping you wouldn't know this. Okay. <laughs> Charlotte, we got some work to do. <laughs> Just kidding. Okay, so um, the underhanded motto is someone who's passive aggressive. Um, they are backstabbers, nice to your face, behind your back, look out. Um, it turns out that this is the most common type of anger style we see at the work site. And um, I'll give you some examples. Showing up late for meetings, 
You think to yourself, not another meeting. All I do is go to meetings. So you go and check your email real quickly. You get a cup of coffee. You go to the bathroom. You text. You come in five minutes late because everyone comes in five minutes late. Except that now you have just controlled when the meeting is going to start because it doesn't only start till we all get there, right? And this is now a, a subliminal way to manipulate a situation. It could also be not giving someone information. I gave a talk to Blue Cross Blue Shield in a... In a um, Pittsburgh, and the CEO came to me afterwards and said, God, I had no idea that our company was, was profiled. I said, what do you mean? He said, we call this information withholding to try and sabotage somebody else. This goes on all the time. Um, and then, of course, the whole idea that we have a litigious society, you know, just sue the bastard. Um, this is in the category of this. And, uh, but the most common form of this, and I don't want any guilt if you're already doing this, because I know you are, is sarcasm. Sarcasm, if you take a look at the dictionary, that word means to tear flesh. It's also called biting humor. But the next time you hear sarcasm, if it doesn't come at you, yeah, it may be pretty funny. But if it does come at you, it hurts. And so I want you to think right now that the next time you hear sarcasm, someone is actually angry about something and they're trying to do it in a socially acceptable means, but there's anger there that's left unresolved. And when anger is left unresolved, ultimately it's going to have an effect on the body. The somatizers just cross the finish line first. Ultimately, it affects everybody. So none of these are good, they're all bad. You can actually be an underhander at work, you can be an exploder driving home from work, and you can be a self-punisher once you get home, okay? Somatizers, that's pretty much all they do, okay? Just FYI on that. But what we wanna do right now is recognize, any of these look familiar to me, to you? And if you can say yes, then what we try and do is identify the behavior and then drop the label. Does that make sense? We no longer want to be X, Y, Z here. One time a woman said to me, I'm a somatizer. Does that mean I should become an exploder? I'm like, no. <laughs> but what she was trying to say was, I want to drop this label. I don't want to die tomorrow. And I'm like, I'm with you. I was raised to be, you know, as a kid of two alcohol parents, you learn to keep your mouth shut. Otherwise, you're not going to live to see tomorrow. And so I, I, I thought, wow. When I first heard this lecture by a wonderful gal named Gloria Mock, I'm like, oh my god, I'm a somatizer. Not anymore. We're changing that behavior dramatically. So I want you to think to yourself, what can you do to change the behavior and begin with by changing and dropping the label? Labels are great to identify, but if, if that's what you become, then you personify it. Does that make sense? <coughs> I'll give you one example. One of my dear friends, and I think she walks on water, her name is Linda Bartlett. She's a school teacher, and we do school presentations on uh, stress for teachers. And she said to me one day, she goes, can I do the talk on anger, the hot zones? I'm like, yeah, sure. So she gets up to the point where she is at this point here. She goes, I am an underhander. And I thought, well, wow, Linda, that's great. You actually admitted this. Wow, that's amazing. And the next time she goes, next year, she goes, can I do the talk on anger, the hot zones? I'm like, yeah, sure. You can have that section. So she gets up, she goes, I am an underhander. <laughs> I'm like, Linda, come here. She goes, what's the matter? I said, come here. I said, You've been an underhander now to this group for two years. We're not making progress. Could you please lie and tell them that you used to be one? And she goes, oh, I get it. <laughs> so we identify the behavior, we label it, and then we drop the label because that no longer serves us. Does that make sense? That's part of that course correction we're talking about to adapt to change. Um, so we see some great ones on TV. I don't know if you're ever a fan of Downton Abbey, but you know, I love it when she came on the screen because she had a really sharp tongue, but thank God those comments were coming at me. And then I was kind of glad when she left because she was nasty. But then this guy kind of took her place and he was nasty too. 
oh my God. I hear they're making a movie out of this now, so FYI on that. But it's not just Downton Abbey. You can see this on uh, other TV shows. Anyone here watch Glee? You know, I don't have a TV, but I do have a DVD player. And one of my friends, Linda, <laughs> she gave us the first season as a Christmas gift. I thought, well, I better watch one so I can say I saw it. I got sucked in until four in the morning watching the whole thing. Like, I know they call this binge watching, but I call this a gateway drug. <laughs> but she was funny. I, I, you know, not have a TV. I'm thinking like, they, they allow this stuff on television now? It's unbelievable what the words they allow. And then of course we have this. To be honest, I didn't think the walk of shame was long enough, but that's just my humble opinion. And of course, um, we call this the revenge stone. There's a wonderful quote that says, when you seek revenge, you should dig two graves. So we want to let anger go. We don't want to let it control us. And a lot of people who have unresolved anger issues basically give their power away, but it's an illusion of control. So we say every unresolved anger issue is a control issue, but it's an illusion. You give your power away. You think you're controlling somebody else but, or yourself, if you're a somatizer or a self-punisher, but really it's an illusion. You're giving your power away. And so I want to toss out a suggestion, a homework assignment, a challenge. Ask yourself, how often do you get mad each day? Now, the number basically is between 15 and 20 per person per day. When I heard that, I'm thinking like, don't you mean like per year? But that's a somatizer. One time at this workshop, I heard this and this woman said to me, she goes, don't you mean an hour? I kind of moved my chair over, so I didn't want to feel the brunt of that. But ask yourself now, what can we do to come back to balance? Because so much of health begins with our emotions. It's not the only part of it, but it's a huge part of it. Every disease has an emotional correlate and coming back to balance means we need to make peace with these emotions. What Kubo Ross said is if you don't, you're going to have dragging your emotional baggage through the rest of your life. So let's lighten up the load. Let's just kind of let, things, let go of things we don't need anymore and then just move on from there. So we talk about creative anger management. Um, I want to I'd be uh, uh, ill-advised to skip over this. We want to make sure that we actually use anger creatively, not destructively. And so you, I'll give you some examples. One is what we just said, identify what your mismanaged anger style. But another one is this, is that um, how many times can you kind of navigate your life so you don't actually come in contact with some of the anger? Not avoidance, but it's basically called the path of least resistance. If you know there are certain people who piss you off or certain buttons are pushed, what can you do to minimize those and, and deactivate the buttons so you don't get them pushed off? Does that make sense? Um, another one is exercise. And not just exercise in terms of cardiovascular fitness, but exercise your sense of humor. That's a big, important muscle to, to measure, uh, use as well. Well, I thought I'd kind of begin with a couple of, um, or I guess kind of close, then we're gonna try some, a little bit of relaxation here. Um, some tips for uh, how to come to back to balance again. So um, we could also call this strategies for change. And I'm gonna give you about 10 of them. Um, there's probably about four or five hundred. I thought I'd give you ten that I think might be beneficial in terms of, of lives of people in the healthcare industry, but they really apply to everybody. So let's kind of begin. The first one, uh, we can also call this care for the caregiver, by the way. The first one um, is this. Keep a bird's eye view. Keep everything in perspective. A lot of times when we are stressed, we have blinders on, and all we see is what is directly in front of us. In fact, do you know the research? In fact, it was done at Harvard. Uh, by a doctor who was an ophthalmologist called Dr. Streff, S-T-R-E-F-F, which I thought was kind of funny because it almost sounds like stress. He wanted to see what happens with your vision when you get stressed. And you know what he found out? The more stress you have, 
You begin to lose your peripheral vision. So all you see is what is directly in front of you. And by having this happen, by not seeing the big picture, we begin to become consumed by our emotions, anger and fear, the stress emotions. And so in this case here, um, we want to step back. And that's, that's part of what meditation is, is basically to step back. And since I'm here, I'll mention this to you right now. Um, mindfulness is, is taken off gangbusters, which I think is wonderful because we need more time to find ways to relax. Um, and one reason why is because of the digital toxicity we see right now. There's a lot of people who are just addicted to their, their technology. But um, the whole idea of mindfulness basically isn't just to be present. That's a good start. But mindfulness basically is detach from your ego and step back and see the big perspective. Does that make sense? So in terms of this, I know that, um, that you do this because how many times have you had a really bad day and you say to yourself, a year from now, this will be funny, but right now it's not funny. Did you ever say that to yourself? Yeah. Okay, for that split moment, you step back and saw the big perspective and thought, wow, this is pretty funny. But then the ego says, come on back, let's, let's get angry. We get sucked into it. So the big perspective says, take a step back and take a look at things. Um, you know, one of my friends is named Mark. He's like my best friend. He and I do a lot of photography uh, trips together. And Mark, I'll call up and I say, hey, Mark, how you doing? And here's his typical answer. By American standards, not too good. <laughs> By world standards, quite excellent. Here's a guy who has learned to see the bigger picture. We all want to do that. Now, I, I made the movie um, on the healing power of nature because uh, a lot of my friends have come down with cancer because what I do is teach stress management. Um, they don't want people in hospitals who are going through chemo to watch the violence on television. So a lot of hospitals across the country have in-house chemo programming, and I made this movie with Michael York. You know who Michael York is, the actor? He was in um, Cabaret with Liza Minnelli and Three Musketeers with... Uh, um, uh, well, I forgot what name. Anyway, um, so we did this movie together. He did the narration. I did the, all the, the, the script and stuff. And um, it turns out I went to the island of Dominica. If you want to take a great vacation to go to a nice place, go to Dominica. Dominica, not the Dominican Republic, whole different place. But Dominica is an island um, just south of um, uh, St. Lucia. And it turns out the people there are dirt poor. I mean, dirt poor. They've got virtually nothing but they are the happiest people I've ever met in my life. I gave rides to some people who were looking out thumbing for a hitchhiking a ride and I got a chance to meet quite a few, talk to them for hours. In fact, I'll tell you this little story, we got some time here. Uh, I got lost and I pulled into someone's area there and five guys jumped off the patio and came to the car and I, I kind of saw the end of my life. Or so I thought, I was so naive. And it was like my first you know, hour there. And this, this person comes to me, he goes, um, what are you doing here? And I said, uh, I'm kind of lost. He goes, you want to get out of here? I said, yeah, I, I kind of want to get out of here. He goes, well, we need a ride. Would you mind giving us a ride? And the guy behind him got a machete about this long. <laughs> and I said, sure, hop in the car. <laughs> I thought the headline was going to read, college professor found dead in Dominica. So the guy gets in the front seat with me and he says, uh, so what are you doing here? I said, I'm doing photography. And all my equipment scattered all over the car, you know, thousands of dollars worth of equipment. And he says, uh, looking for a guide? And I thought, okay, this is a trick question because if I say no, I could be dead. And so I said, um, well, I suppose so. And he says, um, good. He goes, he goes, I'm pretty inexpensive. I'll show you places no one's ever seen before. I saw Dominica like no one has seen Dominica. It's unbelievable. So I got to know four guys pretty well. The happiest people I've ever met in my life.
the nicest people I've ever met in my life. I know people here in this country who have everything, and they're not happy. And so every now and then I want you to step back and take a look at the big picture. This is so important because so many times we can be upset with the changes going on and then with a little bit of perspective we think, oh my God, that was, I'm glad that happened. Have you ever heard that before? Like in hindsight things are pretty good the way they happen there. We don't always, we're not always privy to the bigger picture, but we can step back and see if we can make sense of it all. That is what really is the need to be. So please, number one, keep some perspective with things. Number two, create healthy boundaries. So I'm gonna give you a homework assignment. I want you to come up with a healthy boundary in your life. Not, not 10, not 40, right now just one. A course correction to bring you back to zero, to, to balance here, back to, 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 uh, to zero. In this case here, it could be an eating habit, it could be an exercise habit, it could be a uh, relationship, it could be uh, screen technology. Where is some place in your life you'd like to come back to balance? Come back to harmony, come back to inner peace. So there's somebody at your table who is now gonna be one of your support groups because support groups are really, really important to make changes. We now know that when you have a support group, you're more likely to make a change than if you do it all by yourself. So I'd like to ask if you could now turn to someone at your table, preferably someone you don't know, get their phone number. I don't want emails because I want to reach out and touch somebody experience here. And I want you to call them in a month and just say, how's your healthy boundary? In fact, what you could do is you could just call up and say, healthy boundaries to hang up and just see how it goes. <laughs> okay, so go ahead, say hi, get a phone number from somebody at your table, okay, go ahead. Okay, everyone got that? Now, a month from today, so June, what is it, 13th? 12th, okay, so June 12th, I'd like to have you call up your friend, your new friend, and just say, healthy boundaries, healthy boundaries, healthy boundaries. How are you doing with healthy boundaries? Because we now know it helps to have a friend with this. Hey, so one of my, one of my uh, students, his name is Sergio Lopez. I think he'll be okay if me tell you a story here. Sergio Lopez won the bronze medal in the uh, Seoul Olympics, the 200 meter breaststroke. And it turns out that, um, turns out that he uh, left Spain to come to the United States to train because he had a really good coach here and he ended up being one of my students when I taught at the American University. And in one of my classes, behavioral medicine, we talk about codependency. And somehow that struck a chord with him because he really felt as if his whole life was one big example of codependency. And so every time, and that I haven't, he, he graduated in 1993, okay? So just kind of give you some focus here. Every time he calls me up or sends me a, sends me a message on Facebook, the first question is, how is your codependency? <laughs> it's the same thing as like healthy boundaries. So. Be nice about it, tongue in cheek, nice way to kind of like uh, candy coat it here, but how are you progressing on your healthy boundaries? This is so important because if we don't, we fall in the, the, the trap of victimization. Poor, poor, pitiful me. And we are the only ones that can climb out of the pool of negativity. People can't do it for us. Does that make sense? Okay, good. Uh, next one, get out and exercise. You know, I have an exercise a, a degree in exercise physiology, master's degree, and the whole thing back in the 70s and 80s, even the 90s was three times a week, and a heart rate, which is conducive for your target zone, and, and yada, 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 and I believe in all this stuff. I'm a big advocate of this, but you may have noticed that we haven't lost the whole um, 
bit about weight gain. We're, we're kind of like more obese now than we were back in the 70s. And so now what I say is forget about losing weight. It's all about flushing out the stress hormones. Exercise, even if it's walking, helps get rid of cortisol, vasopressin, aldosterone, epinephrine, norepinephrine, all the stress hormones. There's a, whole, a long list. That's just the top ones. But this is what we want to try and do to come back to balance physiologically. Outside and move. Now I don't say three times a week at a certain duration for a certain intensity. Now I just say go outside and move. And we have research to back this up. You know, there's a lot of evidence-based stuff earlier today. Um, here's some more. We have so many studies on the benefits of exercise. We can float a flotilla of, of uh, battleships. In fact, do you know, there's a wonderful book called um, um, The, the um, Best of Alternative Medicine by uh, Kenneth Pelletier. This is where I learned there were over 600 different modalities of integrative medicine. Do you know which one has the most research? This one. I don't hear anyone ever talking about exercise as a form of complementary medicine, but it is. Because exercise is the stress response. When you're exercising, you're engaged in the fight or flight. But the beauty of it is that when you stop, the parasympathetic hormones kick in and all of a sudden now, we have the effect of relaxation. But by not doing something, some kind of activity, basically we have all these stress hormones sloshing around the body, wreaking havoc. And if you don't know this one, this, this should be headline news. Cortisol does a number of things to prepare you for fight or flight. Helps increase blood sugar levels, it helps increase free fatty acids, and we don't know why the next thing happens, but it does. When it gets done with all its homework assignments for the stress response, it begins to destroy white blood cells. The connection between stress and a suppressed immune system is now so well documented, it should be on cereal boxes. Yet, most people are clueless about this. And so now I no longer say, if you want to lose weight, go out and exercise. Now I say, if you want to basically flush the stress hormones out of your body, go outside and walk. That's all you need to do. 20 minutes is great if you can. So in terms of this, um, next one is the meditation idea. Uh, we heard earlier about this, but I'm a real big fan of this. Um, first of all, there's two kinds of ways, to, two categories of meditation. Uh, maybe more information you want to know, but I think it's information is good and knowledge is power. So there is inclusive meditation and there is exclusive meditation. Categories. Okay, there's thousands of ways to meditate. Inclusive, we'll get to. Exclusive, let's do first. Exclusive is where you sit quietly, close your eyes. Some people say keep them open, it doesn't make a difference. And you try and remove all thoughts from your head but one. And so in this case here, the way to try and use this way to clear, clear your mind is with a mantra. Like the word peace or om or love. You may have heard of mantras before. You say it over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And the reason why is this. The mind is very, very um, abstract. So we're going to use a metaphor to explain it. Your mind basically is like a dirty floor. The dirt are thoughts. The mantra is a broom that sweeps the floor clean so you have a clean surface. Or your mind is like the sky. The clouds are like thoughts. The mantra is a wind that blows the clouds off the horizon so you have a clear view of the celestial heavens. Does that make sense? So in this case here, meditation for, for exclusive, the most uh, promising example we have is TM, Transcendental Meditation. Inclusive. Inclusive is where all thoughts are free to come into your mind. But we don't have emotional attachment. We don't judge them. So imagine you're sitting on the banks of the Charles River and you see a log going down. That represents a thought. That could be your ex-spouse. You want to say that jerk. But you don't because you don't judge. In this case here, you just let it go. But 
that is not exclusive, uh, inclusive meditation. Inclusive meditation or mindfulness is the best example. You step back and you watch yourself watching the river. Does that make sense? That's what we want to do. So meditation is very, very important. And basically, it's a wonderful expression from the Chinese culture that says, when the student is ready, the teacher will come. Code for we are both student and teacher. When we quiet the ego, we now have the, the access to the deep-seated wisdom of the unconscious mind, or what Carl Jung called the collective unconscious. And that is when the teacher comes up and offers us wisdom to help guide us on the course of our day. You know, people hear the word meditation, and, and I've been doing this for 40 years, and they think, I can see it in some people's eyes, oh, that's where you shave your head, you get an orange robe, and you go down to the nearest airport and sell flowers. No, that is so 20th century. This is where you basically take time to cleanse your mind, or as Lord said, to be still. You know, I have a friend in, in Boulder. It's kind of funny here. Asheville and Boulder have a lot in common, Lord. And it turns out that uh, every third person in Boulder is a therapist. Every third person in Boulder is an acupuncturist. Every third person is a Buddhist. It's a very healthy town. <laughs> but in this case here, one of my friends is a therapist, and she said one day at lunch, she said, you know, what we've lost in this culture of ours is the inability to be still. We've lost the art of stillness. And that's what, what meditation is. It's just simply to be quiet, to be still, to cleanse your mind, and really to domesticate the ego so we don't have the chitter-chatter saying, I'm not smart enough, I'm not handsome enough, I don't have enough hair follicles, you know, you know the whole routine. So there's a problem in our culture, and the problem is called monkey minds. So we want to learn to avoid monkey mind. But I've noticed something, where well, your mind ricochets all over the place. I've noticed something that, that the term actually comes to us from India, and they've got lots of monkeys over there. Um, some very smart monkeys, too. <laughs> Apparently have access to cell phones. But we don't have monkeys over here, but we have squirrels, so I'm going to ask you to avoid squirrel mind. Okay, because if you don't, you're going to end up becoming exhausted. You know what's coming next, don't you? You don't want to become roadkill on the information superhighway. Okay, so that's the importance of mindfulness. And we'll have some time to try a little bit of this momentarily here. Uh, next one is diversify your interests. You know the expression, you know, don't put all your eggs in one basket, because if you do and it drops, you're going to have scrambled eggs and a mess. So what are some of your hobbies? What are some of your outside interests? Uh, very, very important to have a life outside of your job. Uh, so essential to have this now. And so what we now know in terms of outside interest or hobbies is that when you can actually detach from this and go somewhere else, the whole purpose of hobbies is to make order out of chaos. Did you know that? Stamp collecting, floral arrangements, you're making order out of chaos. What does that sound like? It sounds like stress management to me. So then you can take those skills at an unconscious level and bring them back to your work and make order out of chaos. Do you follow me on this? So another homework assignment, and by the way, I give out lots of them, I just don't collect them, um, is I want you to think to yourself, where can you begin to have a little bit of personal time for yourself as an outside interest? Because this is called having sanity. Truly, having sanity. And it may, you may think to yourself, isn't that kind of selfish? I, you know, I got a, I got a four-year-old, I, um, I got a husband. Hell no, take time for yourself, because you've, if you don't, then you end up being in the victim game. So we have to have some, some, uh, some private time, some personal time. Uh, take short breaks, of course, of each day. Uh, we, we learned about the importance of mental imagery and uh, guided visualization for patients, but what about for everybody else? We all need this. Take time quietly just to sit and just take yourself to a different place, even if it's for a few moments. 
And what I typically tell people is that when you do positive affirmations, put a visual with it. Don't just say, my body is calm and relaxed. Think of a visual to go along with this. And the reason why is that we are not just conscious individuals, we have an unconscious mind too. And the rule of the road is that your unconscious mind governs behavior. And so if you're not engaged in the unconscious mind, we're doing what my dad called the half-baked job. Okay, he didn't say half-baked, he used something else, but you get the idea. <laughs> And it turns out that um, we need to actually engage both the conscious and unconscious mind for behavior change. Carl Jung, one of my favorite uh, uh, psychologists and, and uh, wisdom keepers, said that your unconscious mind doesn't speak in words, doesn't speak in numbers. It speaks in colors, it speaks in symbols, it speaks in what he called archetypes, really powerful symbols, it speaks in dream fragments. And so by accessing those language set skills, we come back to balance, or what he called psychic equilibrium. And so when you do guided imagery, and if you, if you teach this with your, your, um, your patients, please do this. Just don't give an affirmation, my body is healed and whole. Give them a visual, or ask them to come up with a visual to go along with it, because if we only do 10% as opposed to 100%, we're doing a half-baked job. So, Here's another homework assignment. Write down your top 10 vacation destinations you like to go to. And, and why do people go to the beach or why do they go to the mountains? They go to actually get away, but also by having this connection to nature, we actually put our problems in, in proportion. Things aren't quite so big. Nothing's as big as the ocean. Nothing's as big as a cathedral forest or the Rocky Mountains. Right? That kind of dwarfs things down to size. So that's the idea behind that. Um, support groups, I already talked the importance of this. Turn to your person in your table and wave hi, let them know that you're part of their support group and you're part of theirs, vice versa. Um, we now know the research. Uh, it began with a guy named David Spiegel, who was really sick and tired of being compared to Bernie Siegel. And he said, all of this new age mumbo gumbo integrated medicine is a crock. He goes, I'm gonna prove it all wrong. So he designed a study for support groups and the, the non-efficacy of support groups for cancer patients. And it turns out, he had egg on his face because the women who were in support groups lived far longer than the ones who had no support groups. He's a big believer in the mind-body connection now. But his research backed up the idea of the importance of support groups. And they call this the cushion effect, that if you fall, your friends soften the blow. Does that make sense? And now we now know that you need to have at least a good three to four friends and I don't know why I'm telling you this because women are great with this. It's the men that have the problem. That's why we die off earlier than you do. I bow down to the superior gender of the human species. <laughs> but um, I can tell you right now that um, I have lost several friends over the course of the past 10 years to cancer or to other reasons, other health reasons. My support group has dwindled and when, when a spot becomes vacant, I've got to fill it with somebody else. And so think to yourself now, wh who's your support group? How important are they? And by the way, um, here's part of my support group because some people here are in the audience Audrey, are you here? Did Audrey make it here at all? I guess not. Okay. So anyway, Cindy, you're up there. <laughs> um, these are some of my friends from a, a conference uh, I did last year uh, who've also been with me to Ireland. So that's what that, there's a little Ireland reunion trip there. So my question to you is, who is in your support group? And are there some people who actually are in your group that really aren't giving you support? Who are people that you can count on to be there for you if you're having a down day? And they don't, they're not yes people. They don't say, yes, you're right. Sometimes they say, have you thought about it like this? But they're, they're there for you when the times are tough. And um, that's very, very important. Next one says, uh, anger management, fine-tune your expectations. 
I forgot to mention this, which is why this slide's here now. Every time you get angry, 10 times out of 10, not nine, not eight, not seven, it's because of an unmet expectation. You thought the dog was gonna throw up outside, not inside the new carpet. You thought that your son was gonna fill the gas tank. Okay, I know that's not a realistic one. You thought the person in front of you was gonna go through the yellow light and they didn't. Every time you get angry, 10 times out of 10, it's because of an unmet expectation. Does that mean that we should have no expectations? No, it just means that when they don't get met, then we begin to fine tune them so that we don't give our power away. That is what is so very, very essential. Um, well, we could spend all day on this. Um, to put, eat the right foods. You know, for 10, 12 years, I taught at the University of Colorado a course in nutrition, and here's kind of how it happened. I'm a health psychologist. I study the integration, balance, and harmony of mind, body, spirit, emotions. But because the word health is in my, my, my title, uh, I went to the University of Colorado to see if I could uh, teach a class. And the woman said, um, no, we have, on average, because we have, we have three PhDs a week walking in here asking the same thing. So I kind of thought my shot was, I was gone. A year later, she calls me up and she says, uh, we had this one gal who went on sabbatical. She goes, you want to teach a course in nutrition? And I'm like, that's not kind of what I do, you know? So I teach about mind, body, spirit, but I thought, okay, I'll get my foot in the door. She never came back from a sabbatical. I taught a class for 12 years. Um, I learned a lot, let me tell you. I thought I knew something about nutrition. <laughs> oh my God, you have no idea. Uh, we have the most food in this country and the poorest quality, but that's beside the point. But there are certain things people eat that they shouldn't eat if they're stressed because it jacks up the stress response. Okay, so four things I want you to keep about, and no guilt, no guilt, no guilt. Okay, but just be aware, knowledge is power. Okay, I had this guy come to my class, his name is Doug Margell. He's a, I had a lot of guest speakers come to class. In fact, I kind of shot my whole wad of, of uh, my salary on guest speakers. And the joke was that my class went longer than most Broadway musicals. <laughs> so Doug comes to class, he, his, his lectures on lipids, but it turns out he says afterwards, can I stay and we'll talk some more? I'm like, yeah, sure. So he comes back to break and he says to my students, at the University of Colorado, just FYI, he begins by saying, you're all a bunch of addicts. And all of a sudden, the students who weren't paying attention look up. He says, white powder, you're all addicts. And everyone's like sinking down in their chairs. He says, sugar, flour, salt, caffeine, and, and I saw everyone like sink lower. Like, don't mention that last one, please. He was joking. But we are addicts in this country. When he said this next thing, I thought to myself, oh my God, this should be headline news. Flour, sugar's not supposed to be white. They bleach it. Flour's not supposed to be white. They bleach it. So here I am hiking the Inca Trail, and I'm getting up to about 13,000 feet, and my tour guide says to me, do you want a cocoa leaf? This will help with the altitude um, uh, situation here. And I live at 5,000 feet, so I think I'm pretty strong. I get to 13,000 feet, and I'm like a little bit tinge of a headache. I said, yeah, I'll take a leaf. So I begin to chew it, tastes like straw, and I said, is this what they make cocaine out of? And he goes, yeah, he goes, but don't worry, you'll pass your urine test when you go home. I'm like, okay, well, how does this help? I said, how do they make cocaine out of this? He goes, you don't want to know. I said, I got two more days, yeah, I want to know. He says, okay, first they take these leaves and they soak them in kerosene. And then they dry them out and they soak them in bleach. Then they take them out of that and they make them into powder. Forget the kerosene part. Did you hear the second part? Both of those things actually add with the chemical properties of the coca leaf to increase epinephrine and norepinephrine, among other things. So if you're already stressed, the last thing you wanna do is have caffeine. Does that make sense? But we are living in a culture that just loves it. It's in coffee, it's in teas, it's in sodas, it's in Red Bull, it's in chocolate. 
I am not saying give up chocolate. There go the evaluations, I know. <laughs> but everything in moderation. Do you know it takes eight hours for your body to metabolize one cup of coffee? I lived in DC for about five years. People bragged about having coffee all day long. And I'm thinking like, you're never gonna sleep. And most of them didn't. So um, in terms of things to avoid if you're stressful, think of the, the white powder situations here. Refined sugar, refined flour, salt, tends to boost up uh, increased blood pressure, they say, and then caffeine. Um, just FYI on that. And last but not least, a sense of humor. So um, we want to see if we can try and tickle the hunt, the funny bone here. Very, very important. And so uh, I thought what I'd do is, is uh, tell you that humor is not an emotion. Humor is a perception, okay? So in this case here, um, what I perceive as funny, you might not perceive as funny. So to cover my butt, I'm about to show you some things that hopefully will allow you to laugh. But to cover my butt, I want everyone to raise their right hand and repeat after me. Go ahead. I, everyone, right, right hand. Repeat after me. I promise. I promise. I will not be offended. I will not be offended. And if I am, I will seek immediate counseling. <laughs> okay, so here we go. Humor is a great way to deal with stress. Here's your comic relief prescription. Try, here's your homework assignment. Try and find one humorous thing a day. You don't have to look too hard. I just realized I got some audio. I better get back over here so I can play it. Saw this on Pinterest. Nailed it. When your beach towel is from Costco. <laughs> Tired of being fat and ugly? Just be ugly. <laughs> this Week in TV Guide. The Wizard of Oz, transported to a surreal landscape, a young girl kills the first person she meets and then teams up with strangers to kill again. <laughs> Sorry, we closed. We out of meat. We're spell check when you need it. Whatever you do, always give 100% unless you're giving blood. <laughs> Just brush my dog. <laughs> no, I have a husky. This is very true. This is real. This is actually a newspaper article in the Dominican newspaper. Look what picture they used of Trump. <laughs> You can't make this up, I swear to God. Okay, last homework assignment before lunch. I got a few more after lunch. Um, I taught a class called um, The Healing Power of Humor when I taught at the American University. And it was a spinoff of my stress management class, and I thought I could have my students do a term paper because that's what you do in college, but I, I live by the motto that says to know and not to do is not to know. I'll say it again. 
To know and not to do is not to know. You can know all the right things to live a healthy life, but if you don't do them, what good are they? It goes in one ear and out the other. And part of my job was to have my students actually pick up a skill and do something with it. And so because of the wonderful work of, of Norman Cousins, who basically checked out of a hospital, went to a hotel, and began to cultivate his sense of humor by watching funny videos and movies to get himself back to health, which he did, I thought, I'm going to have you guys build a Tickle Notebook. So I had my students collect funny jokes, funny JPEGs, funny birthday cards, funny Christmas cards, funny Dear Abby letters, Dave Barry columns, all kinds of funny things so that in the event, God forbid, they become a patient in a hospital, they have something to bring their spirits up because most, the research shows most people in hospitals don't use their sense of humor. And so, God forbid, you end up in the hospital as a patient yourself, you grab your toothbrush, your PJs, and your tickle notebook. And I thought I'd share with you a couple things that some of the people who've done Tickle Hope Notebooks have actually sent me. But before we do, I want to share with you a couple stories because this is really, really powerful, I think, at least for me anyway. So I am a dinner speaker at a conference on chronic disease and illness, how to deal with stress. And my, my topic was the healing power of humor. I did a whole talk on this. You're going to see some of the slides probably. And it turns out that um, uh, when I got done, I went to the back of the room and a woman was in a yellow wheelchair. I think she had... Uh, fibromyalgia, and she wheels up to me and she says, your talk wasn't funny, and she wheels away. <laughs> and I thought, well, I guess we didn't reach her. And uh, so, two years later, I'm at a conference in a whole different state, and I'm getting ready before the conference to get my, my computer plugged up and everything, I plugged in, and I, this door opens up in the back of the room like that one, and in comes this motorized wheelchair, a yellow wheelchair. And this woman kind of makes a beeline for me, and, and I, I kind of, of course, I recognized her immediately. And uh, I said, hi, I said, um, can I help you? And she said, yes, I, I came early because I want you to grab a homework assignment. And I said, I played dumb, and I said, oh, which one was that? And she said, it's the Tickle Notebook. And in her basket, she pulls out this notebook that's like about the size of the LA Yellow Pages, about three inches thick, gilded pages. And she said, here, would you please grade this? And I said, I think you get an A. And she goes, no. She goes, please take a look at it. And she says, I met you two years ago. She goes, you gave that talk of that in Colorado Springs. And she said, you know, when I drove home, I thought, what a jerk. Nothing funny about fibromyalgia. And then I thought to myself, maybe it isn't him. Maybe it's me. So I decided to take your advice and do your homework assignment. She said, so here it is. And I said, oh, you definitely get an A. She goes, no, take a look at it. Every page, it was like just so well done. It was like, you know, it's like gilded pages. And she said to me, I'll never forget it. She said, I'm not going to tell you that humor has gotten rid of my fibromyalgia. But I am going to tell you, I am no longer a curmudgeon, and life has gotten a whole lot better. Isn't that beautiful? So in the event this might work for you or some of your, your clients, and there's some people in the room here who are my, my students, and they're smiling at me because I know they've already done their homework assignment. So uh, hats off to you. But anyway, here's a couple things from the Sunset Middle School. I now do talks at middle schools because everyone's got stress. And they said, we know you're going to Boston to speak to some nurses. Tell them that we did our homework. We expect them to do theirs. Here's some things you can put in your slideshow. So here we go. <laughs> if you can see, it says, beware a dog, it's a moose. <laughs> this is how to charge up a cat.
Here go the evaluations again. Hawk, if you love Jesus, keep texting if you want to meet him. When new dad gets bored babysitting. That I'm gonna say at the end. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Okay, so we have a few minutes left. Do you guys want to try some relaxation? Okay, so I'll tell you what, let me, uh, uh, let's see if I can get the next slide here. There we go. Okay, so now I'm gonna invite everyone to close your eyes, get real comfortable. By the way, everything we're gonna do is optional, so if you wanna leave your eyes open, you know, everything's optional, okay? So uh, close your eyes, and if you want to kick off your shoes, because your feet, um, when they're confined by shoes, are not as relaxed as when they're um, no shoes on. Also, um, if you are wearing a watch, please take that off, because your body has a pulse. Your watch has a pulse. We want you more relaxed than your watch. And if you're wearing large jewelry, just take that off and pass it on up to me. <laughs> Only kidding. Okay, so now, um, and by the way, if you are wearing glasses, um, you're not going to need those, so if you want to take them off, too, because you're... Won't feel that on your face. Okay, so I'd like to invite you now to just focus on your breathing. And to do this, feel the air come into your nose or mouth, down into your lungs. And feel your stomach begin to extend out nice and slowly, and then come back as you exhale out through your mouth. So we're gonna breathe in through our nose and mouth, but we're gonna breathe out through our mouth very slowly. And this type of, of exercise we're gonna do now is called diaphragmatic breathing. It's also called belly breathing. Some people call it abdominal breathing. Goes by lots of different names, but this is thought to be the most relaxing way to breathe. And the reason why is that when you put the emphasis on your lower stomach, your abdominal area, then we no longer have pressure on the sternum, which has a bundle of nerves underneath it called the solar plexus nerve bundle. A lot of people in our culture tend to be thoracic breathers. They tend to breathe with their upper chest. We want to breathe with our lower stomach. So take a nice, slow, deep breath, comfortably slow and comfortably deep, as slow and as deep as you can. And then follow that with one more even slower and even deeper breath. And put all your attention, all your thoughts and your breathing for the next five minutes or so or 10 minutes, that's all I want you to think about, just your breathing. But of course, the mind tends to wander, so if you find your mind wandering, and, and that's what minds do, just bring it on back and focus on your breathing. If you hear any outside noises or have any interesting thoughts of your own, just acknowledge those and let those go as you exhale. So take a nice, slow, deep breath again, comfortably slow and comfortably deep. As slow and as deep as you can, just put all your thoughts, all of your attention on your breathing. 
Exhale, when you focus on your breathing, feel in the ears, with your mind's eye, seeing the air come into your nose or mouth, down into your lungs, allow your stomach to extend out and come back out through your mouth. One reason why we tend to become thoracic breathers in this country is that um, there's a real big push to have a certain look. And the look is a big chest and a small stomach. Whether you're a man or a woman, that's the look. But by having us breathe with our upper chest, we begin to put pressure on the nerve bundle that I mentioned, the solar plexus nerve bundle. And when this is pressurized, even slightly, we begin to see an increase in heart rate, an increase in blood pressure, an increase in muscle tension, all the things that we want to decrease as we relax. And by the way, this is the way in which you breathe when you are sleeping, belly breathing, because when you're asleep, you don't care how you look. But at some point, in a, you may see little kids that have big stomachs, that's, how, that's because that's how they breathe, yet um, when we somehow become uh, adults, somewhere in the childhood to teen years, we realize we need to look different, so we shift our breathing, mostly unconsciously. The kids don't even know where they're doing this. Um, Sting, the musician, said the problems with Americans is they don't know how to breathe properly. And what he's maintaining is that we tend to be breathing with our upper chest, not our lower stomach. All singers know this, that you, to, to sing, you've got to sing with your diaphragm. And so breathing is the same way. We want to breathe with our, our, our abdominal area and take a nice, slow, deep breath in again. Comfortably slow and comfortably deep. As slow and as deep as you can. And again, if your mind wanders, and that's what minds tend to do, just acknowledge that and redirect your thoughts back to your breathing. And take a nice, slow, deep breath now. Comfortably slow, comfortably deep. And as you breathe, I'd like you to be aware that there are four distinct phases in each breath cycle. And I'll walk you through these. The first phase is the inhalation. Some people call this the in-breath or inspiration. We take air into our lungs. The second phase is a very, very slight pause before you exhale. Third phase is when you do exhale. Some people call this the out-breath or, or exhalation. And the fourth phase is a very, very slight pause before you take air back in again. So without holding your breath consciously for any long period of time, just to be acknowledging the four phases and specifically the pauses between the in-breath and out-breath. Just be aware that there is an in-breath and an out-breath. And there's a pause between each one. Now take a very, very slow, deep breath. Comfortably slow and comfortably deep again. And as you observe your breathing, I'd like you to be aware that although we're not going to count the number of breaths in a minute, if we were, you'd probably be hovering somewhere around 12 to 14. That's the number of breaths in a normal state of breathing. When people get very, very stressed, they tend to breathe more shallow and more from the upper chest. And sometimes can actually double the number of breaths per minute when they're stressed up to 28, 30. When people are very relaxed, the yogis, the mystics, they can actually breathe one or two times per minute and be very, very relaxed too. Three to four is actually pretty common for the average person if they are very, very relaxed. But there are some people who, when they're tense, when they're stressed, also breathe three or four times per minute because they're known as breath holders. They tend to hold their breath. It's also called anxiety breathing. And we don't want to do that because when you do that, you put pressure under the sternum, the uh, solar plexus nerve bundle, and this again causes the stress response, and we want the relaxation response. So once again, take a very, very slow, deep breath, comfortably slow, comfortably deep, as slow and as deep as you can, and just feel how relaxed your body is right now. In fact, the most relaxing phase of breathing is the, the 
exhalation, the letting the air out through your lungs, the out-breath. And the reason why is that that requires no work, no effort. It just happens all by itself. And then follow that with one more, even slower, even deeper breath. Comfortably slow, comfortably deep. And now for the next five breaths, as you exhale, I'd like to have you think this phrase to yourself. My body is calm and relaxed. My body is calm and relaxed. Go ahead and try that out. Say that to yourself as you exhale for the next five breaths. And as you say that to yourself, I'd like to have you think of an image of relaxation. Think of a symbol of relaxation. And I'll give you a couple of examples in case you'd like to have one or two. The first one I want to give you is someone who told this to me, which I think is a great one. It's a rainbow in the afternoon sky. Just imagine what that would look like. Someone else told me that their image of relaxation is a hummingbird sitting still on a tree branch. Yet a third image, someone told me their image of relaxation, their symbol of relaxation is morning dew on rose petals in the garden. And yet one more, if you like one more, it's just a body of water, like a mountain lake or a, a lake in the woods. It is so still, it reflects all that's around it. I want you to think now, what is your personal image of relaxation? What is your symbol of relaxation? And I'd like to have you hold that, not in your head, but have it in the center of your body, what is known as the Dantian or the Hara, the reservoir of energy in the center of the body so that we can actually stay centered and grounded and have that be a skill that we take with us the course of our day. So see that image in your mind's eye, but hold the template of that image in the core of your body. And for the next five breaths, again, repeat the phrase, my body is calm and relaxed. My body is calm and relaxed. Now slowly allow this image, this visualization you have created, this symbol of relaxation to fade from your mind's eye, but retain the sense of calm energy it provides for you in the core of your body. Feel that sense of relaxation all throughout your body. Think to yourself, when you get stressed, if you get stressed, just close your eyes for a brief moment and just call to mind that image and call to mind that phrase, my body is calm and relaxed. Take a nice, slow, deep breath now, comfortably slow, comfortably slow and as deep as you can. And follow that with one more, even slower and even deeper breath.
And as you focus entirely on your breathing, I'd like to leave you with a, uh, a phrase that I heard from a Chinese wisdom keeper. He said, there are over 40 different ways to breathe. And when I first heard that, I thought, really, I thought it was only one, inhale and exhale. And he said, as if you could read my mind, he said, when you combine imagery with breathing, there are unlimited ways to breathe to bring yourself back to homeostasis. And so think to yourself now, how can you use something as very, very simple as breathing to bring yourself back to a place of peace? In the times that you feel you may be less than relaxed, can you have the, the fortitude and the willpower and just the savviness to bring yourself back to balance with a slow, deep breath? I'd like to ask you now to think to yourself, where in the course of your day can you carve out five minutes to sit still and just focus on your breathing? And the, the wisdom keepers often talk about having a good half an hour to do this, and that's a great suggestion, but sometimes um, if you can just get five minutes in, we're, if we're doing a good start. So where in the course of your day can you carve out five minutes to sit quietly? And we all have five minutes to do this. This is a healthy boundary behavior that allows us to navigate the rest of the day without hitting the shoals and becoming shipwrecked. Okay, take one final slow, deep breath, comfortably slow, comfortably deep. Bring yourself back into the awareness of this room. Bring yourself back into the awareness of your body. Think of the approximate time of day and where you are on planet Earth. And if you could now begin to very slowly open your eyes to a soft gaze in front of you. And if you want, begin to wiggle your fingers and toes. If you want, you can roll your shoulders. Bring yourself back into the awareness of your body. And if you'd like, and this is purely optional, just turn to the person next to you and just share them how you felt. Okay, okay, before we close things and uh, break for lunch, I'd like to um, once again ask, can we give Charlotte and Kristen, a round of applause for a wonderful day today. Thank you. And all the people on the committee. Um, I want to say thank you for your uh, wonderful uh, presence. My favorite audience is, audience is nurses because you guys, you just get it. And you make my job very easy. So thank you very, very much. We'll see you after lunch.